This is the BBC. This podcast is supported by advertising outside the UK. Thanks for taking the time to download this edition of Any Questions from BBC Radio 4. Welcome to a freshly refurbished radio theatre at Broadcasting House and a panel refreshed, if not quite refurbished, by the summer break. Rachel Maskell is an MP in the great railway city of York and appropriately speaks for her party on rail. She's criticised the fare rises announced this week as appalling and staggering when rail services are on their knees with cancelled trains and substandard services. An NHS physiotherapist for many years, she has a solution to delays and cancellations. She once cycled from London to the Labour Party conference in Brighton. 56 miles. I should imagine you needed a bit of physio after that, didn't you, Rachel? Well, I have cycled end-to-end in Britain too. Oh, gosh, well, there you go. (laughs) Who needs trains? (laughs) Norman Lamb had his first experience of Westminster assisting a Labour MP, but it's as a Liberal Democrat that he won his Norfolk parliamentary seat. For three years, he was a health minister in coalition with the Conservatives and argued unsuccessfully for an all-party agreement on social care. He maintains his non-tribal approach to politics, chairing the cross-party Science and Technology Select Committee, though if they ever think of deposing him, his colleagues should be warned. By profession, he's an employment lawyer. (laughs) (laughs) James Brokenshire was also a lawyer for an international firm before being elected to the Commons as a Conservative. He resigned as Northern Ireland Secretary at the start of the year in order to undergo treatment to remove a small lesion from his right lung. In April, he returned to government as Housing, Local Government and Communities Secretary. This week, he's launched a strategy to end rough sleeping, as well as proposals to protect tenants from unfair eviction. There shouldn't be much danger of that for James Brokenshire himself. The most prominent predecessor in his constituency in South East London was Ted Heath, MP there for 51 years. Katie Balls studied philosophy at the University of Durham, so naturally enough she ended up as a journalist. She's political commentator at The Spectator magazine, a previous editor, Boris Johnson, who I think may have been mentioned in passing on this programme last week. Anyway, Katie is about to launch a new podcast, Women with Balls. I hesitate to ask, what's it about? Well, I thought I'd try and make the most of my surname um, after <laughs> surviving school with that one. <laughs> who are you into? Not Ed um, Balls? No, um, women who are excelling in their industry. So we have Liz Truss and Dave, Helen and Morrissey lined up. Yeah. Great, look forward to it. Ladies and gentlemen, that's your Any Questions panel. <laughs> and can we have our first question, please? Ian Harris. Is the January 2019 rail fare increase of 3.2% justified in light of the recent timetable fiasco? Rachel Maskell. Well, we have to ask who is in charge of the railways these days because Chris Grayling, as the Secretary of State, had a choice over how he would deal with the issue of rail fares and he chose to increase in line with RPI astonishing in the light that the last three months there has been complete chaos due to the introduction of three new timetables and of course people stranded at stations with delays and cancellations and of course this increase will only go to contribute to paying for their own compensation and on the day of his announcement he chose to scapegoat the hard-working staff across the railways who keep us safe day in day out and I have to say to Chris Groening it is about time he looked in the mirror at the one person who has got the responsibility for running the railways, at himself, and ask why, under his watch, we are seeing complete chaos across the railways, real waste in resources, fares increasing 
three times more than wages. And of course, passengers now voting with their feet and taking to their cars as opposed to using the trains. The wrong kind of modal shift we want to see across our country. He is the Secretary of State. He is responsible. And I have to say, after this summer of chaos, he should resign. Casey Balls. I think at the moment the Conservatives are doing a really good job of making the argument for Jeremy Corbyn's flagship rail policy, which is nationalisation. And that's because we have had constant delays with lots of cancellations, and now on top of that we're now hearing that they want fares to go up. It's really hard to justify that. And I think Chris Groening has tried to pin this as an argument of him taking on the unions. And it goes down to inflation and which type of inflation you use. But I think the problems just go deeper than that. So although I think he might have a point, maybe we should just use the inflation that runs one point lower. Actually, what is not working is how they're running the rails at the moment. I think it's quite obvious to everyone. And I feel it's partly because what we have is we've replaced a state monopoly with private companies on a monopoly. There's no choice for the consumers. And unless there's choice, what is the point of privatisation? Norman Lamb. Well, I try not to be too personal in uh, my politics, but I do have to ask myself the question, how is Chris Grayling still in his job? (laughs) This this is the man who, if you remember, uh, stopped the sending of books into prisons, uh, a reform that was actually overturned remarkably by Michael Gove when he became uh, (laughs) Justice Secretary. But uh, his... uh, uh, capacity for incompetence uh, seems to know no bounds. Uh, and uh, I just uh, uh, am feeling in a state of despair about the state of our railways. Um, it cuts across the whole country. We have a small rural line into uh, North Norfolk where there's been uh, a whole series of cancellations of trains leaving passengers stranded. And the idea that you can completely mess up the timetable as they did this year and then expect people to pay more uh, for their travel. I suppose it's this idea that if you're on the train for longer, you have to pay more. Uh, Not most people's idea of uh, fairness. Uh, So, uh, no, I don't think it's justified. And actually, I would like to see something, I think, in many ways, more radical than nationalisation. I think the idea of uh, mutuals running railways, where you have all of the staff with a stake in the railway company, with passengers also having a stake, I think you'd see a total change of culture, and I think that's what's needed. James Brokenshire, the the argument over the different levels of inflation is a technical one in terms Mm. of which measure is chosen, but Chris Grayling has urged the railway companies to make the change, which would help reduce the uh, increase in regulated fares. Of course, not all uh, fares are regulated, but the the ones that are. Um, But isn't it ultimately his choice which measure of inflation is used? It's a government responsibility, Mm. isn't it? 
Well, I certainly recognise the pressures that exist on people trying to get into work, the unacceptable uh, standards that we've seen on Govia Thameslink and also on Northern Rail itself, and therefore the context to this in, the, in relation to the annual increase in uh, the fares. There is a balance to be struck between the investment the taxpayer provides, and they contribute about £4 billion a year to the railway, and then how that is then fair for the taxpayer as against people who are using the railway, knowing that we've seen real investment in rolling stock, in the infrastructure, to actually seek to uh, change the railway from where it was in the Victorian times. But on this issue of the, uh, the rate of inflation, well, at the moment, the rate of inflation is RPI within the industry. And that's why I think Chris has very rightly challenged this as to how we bring that cost down, why the he office, has approached the unions you, and, the, and the train companies themselves just, just to, to negotiate that change. Just to clarify, the Office for National Statistics, which after all is the government-recognised body, has described RPI as a very poor measure of general mm. inflation. Mm. And, and that's why I think the Transport Secretary, Chris Grayling, is right to now challenge and work through with the train companies and the unions, because this is about negotiation, because of the nature of the contracts that are in place. And ultimately, what he's seeking to do is to bring that cost base down, to reduce, therefore, the pressures that then have to be fed through in fares, and get that better deal, that better service for the passenger, and a better railway too. Um, Craig Hall, who's uh, emailed into uh, the programme, uh, and I'll give you the details for contacting us in just a moment, but he says private versus nationalised is a false argument. It's simply about good management. Maybe they ought to send someone over from Switzerland, where they're almost always on time <laughs> and efficient. Maybe, who knows, maybe somebody who Theresa May will meet on one of her walking holidays. Um, <laughs> to be fair to Chris Grayling, should he wish to respond to the criticisms he's faced this evening, he, like anybody else, can always uh, call <laughs> any answers after the Saturday edition of Any Question. The number 03700 100444, lines open at 1230 on Saturday, 03700 100444. Anita Arnold is keen to take any calls. If you're following the programme as we uh, broadcast, don't forget you can email any.answers, bbc.co.uk. You can do what Craig Hall did, which is uh, tweet us using the hashtag BBCAQ or follow us at BBC Any Questions. And last, but by no means least, text us on 84844. I'll give you all those details again later in the programme. Ian, thank you very much for your question. Let's move on to our next question, please. Philippa Downs. Is Jeremy Corbyn Britain's unluckiest peace campaigner? <laughs> the context of this, is, of course, is a visit that uh, Jeremy Corbyn made to a conference uh, four years ago, the year before he became leader of the Labour Party, which has dominated some newspaper reporting during the course of this week, where he was laying a wreath, not, he said, to any members of the group Black September, which carried out the killing of 11 hostages from the Israeli Olympics team at Munich in 1972 and a West German police officer, but for uh, commemorating a bombing of the PLO's headquarters in Tunis, in 1985. Um, Norman Lamb. Well, I'd start with a cautionary note that I think there's a danger that uh, a photograph is taken and there happens to be two people together in a photograph and you're sort of blamed by the association that you have. And quite often, I mean, in this job, you're photographed the whole time. And quite a lot of the time, you have absolutely no idea who's standing there next to you in some gathering that you've gone to in a conference or whatever. So I just think that cautionary note is quite important. But it, 
the, the explanation that Jeremy Corbyn gave, which has been so inconsistent and unclear, uh, I think muddies the waters enormously. And when you add that to the enormous difficulties they're having with this whole argument about anti-Semitism, the failure to accept the internationally recognised definition of anti-Semitism, uh, I think leaves many people deeply disturbed. And one of the real problems I think we have is that when you don't accept that definition as, uh, as the national executive has chosen to do, it sort of sends a signal out to people, to some pretty bad people, to say what they like, particularly on social media. Uh, and uh, uh, what I've been particularly shocked by is female Labour MPs who happen to be Jewish and the appalling abuse that they get on social media. And there should be no place for that at all in our politics. And I just think Jeremy Corbyn needs to be much clearer. If he says that he's a man of peace, if he says that he opposes racism in all its forms, then he needs to send out a much clearer and consistent signal to stop this uh, and to avoid any continuation of the awful abuse that we're getting on social media. James Brokenshaw. I think Norman touches on some very important points as to the sort of society that we are and how anti-Semitism is completely unacceptable in the civilised country that we do exist in. And Jeremy Corbyn has been very inconsistent. He said one thing, he's then said another thing. And I think it's that lack of trust in the whole narrative to explain what's happened this week with the pictures and the Tunisia wreath laying. But more fundamentally... It is this issue of the concerns that the Jewish community have, the real concerns. Actually, I would say fear and anxiety that I've certainly been picking up in a number of my conversations and listening to Margaret Hodges' comments this week about the way in which she felt she had been treated in terms of the, the investigation into her and how she more drew the parallels back to... Nazi Germany. I think it's wrong if, if Len McCloskey as a union leader is saying it's almost the Jewish community that needs to change it. No, it's the Labour Party that needs to change and we need to adopt perhaps that kinder, gentler politics that Jeremy Corbyn has espoused but frankly has been absent over recent weeks. But let's make sure we're... Let's, 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 just, let's just make sure we're consistent here because... I listened to an excruciating interview, I'm afraid again with Chris Grayling this week, on the Today programme, where he was being asked about Boris Johnson, and his response was to turn it on to Jeremy Corbyn. And let, let's just confront the problems in each of our parties, and we all have problems. Let's not always try to turn the blame onto others. And I think that was a really de de depressing example of what turns so many people off politics in this country. I should just... Oh. Since James mentioned him, I should just clarify what Len McCluskey was quoted as saying in an interview with Huffington Post, the, the um, Union General Secretary. Uh, this was on Thursday. Uh, he said that Labour had been insensitive on the issue of anti-Semitism. He said it should adopt the full internationally accepted definition of anti-Semitism, including the examples that are given, which is the issue where Jeremy Corbyn has been unhappy with one of the particular examples because he says it makes it difficult to criticise 
the government of Israel's policy towards the Palestinians. That's his explanation. Uh, but he also did say that Jewish community leaders had shown intransigent hostility to Mr Corbyn when he attempted to explain his position. Katie Balls. Well, I think Norman makes a very good point here, which is every party has their own problems here. I think on Labour and anti-Semitism, it feels that they are stuck in a groundhog day. There is a new row, you know, every couple of weeks. And it might be about a different thing that sparked it, but it always seems to be on the same themes. And I think when it comes to Jeremy Corbyn specifically, we know that the Labour Party have taken issue with some of the press coverage and the way that's been depicted. But it does seem to be the case that he often finds himself in the wrong place at the wrong time, sometimes with the wrong reef. <laughs> and, and each time there is, you know, there is an excuse, there is a reason. But it does raise questions because it's a pattern of behaviour. And I don't think the actions have been strong enough yet. And often when there are actions by Labour, it feels like they're taken when they're on the back foot, when they're pushed into it. So I think it's welcome news that they look like they will be adopting the full anti-Semitism IHRA definition. But it's been a long time coming. Uh, Rachel... Maskell, the, the quote that raised a few eyebrows from Jeremy Corbyn this week was when he said, uh, when asked about this wreath that was being perhaps laid by others uh, to commemorate Black September and making clear that he, that was not what he was there for. He was there for a, a wreath laying over this bombing of the PLO headquarters, remembering that. He said, I was present when it was laid, this other wreath. I don't think I was actually involved in it. Um, is that a case of Jeremy Corbyn being unlucky or is he making his own luck? Well, Jeremy Corbyn has been very clear this week. He has said he condemns Black September. He condemns the atrocious killing um, uh, in, in Munich in, in 1972. And he has also said that he wasn't there on accordance of that laying of that reef. He, in fact, he was there to lay a reef over the PLO HQ that was bombed. And obviously, people lost their life in that, that tragedy. But Jeremy Corbyn has also been incredibly clear about what he has been doing in the Labour Party. First of all, to correct panel members, he, the Labour Party has adopted the full definition of the IHRA. We have fully adopted seven of the, de the, the examples which accompany that and have in fact gone further with the examples that we have put in place and gone to explain how they will be applied. Do you we share then Jeremy Corbyn's concern that if you were to adopt this eighth one, which is about, uh, to, to kind of summarise it, basically saying uh, you have to be careful about criticising Israel's right to exist because that can appear anti-Semitic when you're talking about it as a country rather than as a religion, that that makes it difficult for uh, you as a Labour politician to be critical of Israel's policies. The issue is, is neither religion or country. It's in fact a political regime, which obviously we, we know thousands of people have died in across Israel and Palestine, the most atrocious situation. And Jeremy Corbyn is a man of peace. He has all his life strove for human rights, who has spoken out. He's not a run-of-the-mill politician that just is complicit within the rules. He will stretch out because of his real belief that we have to try and make a difference in our world. And he, therefore, will go the extra mile to try and bring countries together for dialogue. He is a man that has never voted for war, and I uphold him in that because he doesn't believe that killing achieves anything. He will go further to try and create dialogue so that parties come together to resolve their differences, and that is why he is so popular up and down the country, because he reaches out beyond the norms Forgive of politicians. Forgive me for, for, for kind, of, uh, kind of banging on about this, but I just want to be clear... 
what is it about this uh, line that has been emitted, which appears as one of the examples in the internationally accepted definition, that warns against, quote, claiming that the existence of a state of Israel is a racist endeavour? What is it that you can't accept as a Labour politician? What is the problem with that? Well, the NEC has gone out to the Jewish community and invited them to come and and say what they want to see within the definition. It's still out for consultation. It goes before the NEC in in two or three weeks' time. It's not Jeremy Corbyn's decision. It is the NEC, the ruling body of the party. And and Jeremy has said he is listening to everybody. He wants to get this absolutely right. That's why we have gone further in the code of conduct that we have constructed to date. But also, he wants to ensure that not only our party sees anti-Semitism as something of the past, but our country too. Because we must remember that many of these people who have been putting anti-Semitic comments on social media, they're not members of the Labour Party. They're, they're, in fact, the anti-Semitism in the Labour Party is, is less than it is elsewhere in the country. And we've got a real problem how, how do you, if one how do you person measure raises that? these issues within the, the country. How do you know it's less than in the rest of the country? Well, the certainly from the examples that have been given compared to the, the quantum of, of anti-Semitism okay. and also other complete unacceptable behaviour within other political parties. We've all got to get our our houses in order, and that's why we have taken great strides to do so. And in September next month, we're introducing a a training programme for all Labour Party members Uh, around this very issue. uh, uh, James Brogenshire, your colleague Zach Goldsmith, did say on Twitter that uh, Lord Sheikh, the founder of the Conservative Muslim Forum, who was also at the conference... He said this man should be immediately expelled from the Conservative Party if he's not the party's hierarchy's complaints about Corbyn look entirely cynical. Well, we will always look at uh, complaints that are made. There's a clear process for doing so. But I think the broader point that has been made about a tolerant society, one that is at ease with itself, where we should confront all forms of hatred, and I profoundly do as community secretary, it is wrong that we have communities, whether they be the Jewish community, whether they be the Muslim community in, this, in our country, who are in fear. And therefore, as as politicians, it is important that we make that profound point of the country that we need to be, of how we should celebrate diversity, but actually how we are strong together and how, with, uh, with all sorts of challenges that we have as a country, actually, I see that as a positive part of our country, our identity, and how we are stronger and better for it. Remember, incidentally... Uh, Zach Goldsmith came under quite a lot of criticism for his mayoral campaign here in this city. So I don't think he's the right person to speak on this. Thanks for the question, Philippa. Let's move on. Hit and mystery. Is vaping the cure to smoking? (laughs) Hit and mystery there with is vaping the cure... Uh, to smoking. Uh, Norman Lamb, I should ask you about this first because this has been prompted, I suspect, in part, my right hidden, because of the report from Norman's committee, Science and Technology yeah. Committee, uh, that says we've nothing to worry about, Norman. Doesn't quite say that. Uh, <laughs> and I arrived in the BBC studio in Norwich at 5.55 this morning, so I'm feeling a touch jaded. Um, now, I, I think this is a really important report, and uh, at the centre of it, of it, really, is the fact that 79,000 people in our country, in England, every year, die from smoking. Uh, now, that's a shocking death toll. Uh, and when we considered the wealth of evidence that we received from organisations like Cancer Research UK, from the British Heart Foundation, from the British Medical Council, from Public Health England, 
they were all, and many more of them, saying very clearly that on the evidence we have, vaping is significantly less harmful than smoking. Uh, and given that horrific death toll from smoking, uh, and the fact that we know that vaping doesn't contain some of the chemicals that you find in cigarette smoke that cause cancer, then I think there's a very clear public health message that we should be encouraging people who smoke and who are heavily addicted to smoking and who will probably die as a result to give up and to transfer to vaping. Of course, the main message is if you can give up altogether and not vape or smoke at all, that is the best. But, if there, but there are many people who can't do that because of the scale of this addiction. Tobacco is highly addictive, nicotine, highly addictive. So for those people, for goodness sake, let's help save lives. I have a particular interest in mental health. Uh, we know that the prevalence of smoking amongst people with mental ill health is significantly higher. About 40% of people with mental ill health uh, still smoke. And that's part of the reason why they die 15 to 20 years before everyone else. Now, in a third of mental health trusts around the country, they are failing to follow the advice of Public Health England and they ban vaping in their premises. Now, this is ridiculous because it's failing to follow the evidence and it's failing to grab the opportunity when someone's an inpatient to help them to give up smoking, which we know is likely to kill them. So I think there's an awful lot more we can do to encourage, through the NHS, people to stop smoking uh, with this horrific death toll, and vaping is one possible solution to that. Katie, is there a lot of vaping going on at The Spectator? <laughs> Not much, as far as I can see it, but I have a lot of friends who are very into vaping, and it might say more about um, who I hang out with, but some go to, <laughs> some go to vaping festivals. <laughs> I haven't gone yet. And one of the arguments, I mean, I think this report's really interesting about um, vaping. And actually, if you look at the figures, there are about 3 million Brits who are vaping. And about we think about half a million that are using it as a way to kind of wean themselves off cigarettes or quit, which I think is definitely a good thing. And one of the arguments against vaping is that it could be used as perhaps a gateway to then going to real cigarettes. I mean, this is purely anecdotal, but everyone I know who vapes are so proud to do it with all the kind of gadgets you get, the different scents that they wouldn't even think, um, they think it was a downgrade to then switch back to tobacco. So I, I do think it yeah, is actually a really exactly. positive thing to do more of. Exactly. Mm. Rachel Maskell, you spent quite a long time in the NHS as, as a physio, so I, I should imagine that you had a fair number of patients who had suffered the effects of smoking over the years. Well, that's right. I used to care for people with respiratory disease at the end of their lives and very much saw the consequences of smoking, whether lung, lung cancers or heart disease or stroke. And clearly, if we can avoid people being ill as a result of that, then we absolutely must do everything we possibly can. And it is really encouraging to see the number of people smoking being reduced, and that's a, a real positive. And if vaping is a, a mechanism to achieve that, then it must be used in that, that way. But obviously, I am also concerned at the moment at the scale of the public health cuts we're seeing across our country, £800 million lost around public health, very much looking at trying to stop people smoking in the first place. In York, in my constituency, smoking cessation 
yeah. absolutely being severed. And the as numbers a, have gone down enormously uh, using those. And smokes. the consequences of that clearly are, are, are of high risk that people will take up smoking. So we need to make sure that we are putting all of these measures in place and therefore ring-fencing the public health grant is absolutely crucial in order to make sure there is real investment it, in Hitton's the question was, was, was about whether it's the cure to smoking. Do you have any reservations about the potential health consequences of vaping? Well, clearly there's got to be more research into the yeah, long-term consequences so. of vaping. We don't know the outcomes. People will still be vaping um, nicotine, which is a drug, and therefore there could be harmful effects as a result of that. So we do want the research to continue into this. But clearly it is a better alternative and it will reduce premature mortality. James Brokenshaw. Sean, you touched on my health issues from the start of the year, and uh, you know I'm very interested in lung health, unsurprisingly, as a consequence of that, and how there are 46,000 lung cancer diagnoses each year, and earlier this year I was one of them, and had surgery to remove a third of my lung, and therefore you know, feel very lucky to have got through that and now looking at these issues of how we can identify lung cancers earlier and get better outcomes. And therefore, actually getting people to quit smoking, yeah, that's absolutely up there. And we've had some real successes on that. I think we should be very proud as to what's been achieved. And therefore, if vaping can help people quit smoking, absolutely. That's a really important part of what we need to do to change the approach and change people's uh, you know, lifestyles in some way. But I just want to be cautious about what the long-term impacts of this are and how, yes, Norman's rightly said it's less harmful, but it's not necessarily harmless. And therefore, the exposure of the lung to vapours, what that means over the long term. And therefore, whilst I do understand the public health desire to get more people to stop smoking, how this may be a route to do so. I think we need to be cautious about issues of substitution, see how the evidence works through, see what the medical evidence highlights through this, because what I don't want to see is that with, I think, good intent from the committee in provoking this debate and actually highlighting some of these issues, we don't end up taking ourselves backwards in some way and undo some of the really good things that I think we have seen on stopping people from smoking and smoking cessation. And therefore, how we advance this rather than taking it backwards somehow. So we absolutely recommend that there should be continued research to understand better mm -hmm. the long-term consequences of vaping. But there is a price to be paid for the caution you talk about, James, because if we're equivocal in our public health message to people, we will reduce the number of people who stop smoking and start and shift to vaping. And lives will be lost as a result of that. So I'm, if I'm, there certainly is... not, I'm not certainly being equivocal in terms yeah. of the, the sort of public health benefits and actually ensuring that we support that transition to getting people to quit smoking. All I'm saying is some of the other broader issues that are, are highlighted that I think all I'm saying is we need to look at your report carefully and ensure that we're taking it down this really positive path, which I, I fully recognise as the intent of the committee. Yeah. But it's some of these longer-term issues that I think we just need to look at how the evidence sits there. And if you have...
and if you have views listening at home, Anita Arnon will be very interested in them. A reminder that any answers, uh, the lines open at 12.30, the number 03700 That's 12.30 after the Saturday broadcast, and uh, any answers follows after uh, the news, after uh, 2 o'clock, of course, just after 2 o'clock on Saturday afternoon. Email any.answersbbc.co.uk, tweet us, hashtag BBCAQ, and follow us at BBC Any Questions. The text number is 84844, 84844. Our next question, please. And uh, it's a slightly complicated one. We're going to hear from one questioner, although the question has been posed by father and son. Tell me who you are and who's sitting next to you. Uh, John Constable and uh, my son Ben sitting next to me. Um, young people across the country have just received their A-level results after two years' hard work. Given the new, harder examinations have resulted in essentially the same outcomes as last year, what was the point of the change? Thank you, John. Uh, John and Ben, we'll come back to you after uh, the uh, answers. Um, well, it seems the obvious place to start with James Brokenshaw. Well, I, I certainly want to commend everyone who has got their A-level results this week and how there are so many people who are celebrating going to university. And every, I was at Loughborough University on, on Thursday, on the results day, and to uh, hear the university knowing there were so many people coming through, how they would got their places virtually filled on that day. I think that the point is that we want to ensure that we continue to... Uh, see that we have a strong uh, exam system, that we look at some of the STEM, the, the science, technology, engineering and maths issues and keep those under careful review and, and how the changes were actually reflected on the basis of what universities have been saying about some of the skills that they were picking up on new, new uh, undergraduates arriving and therefore how they wanted to see some further testing, hence the reason for informing some of those changes. So less so coursework, more yeah, returning so to the final exams. More of the, the final exams. And, and therefore, you know, I think it's some of those skills, some of that assessment that led to the changes because it was reflection on what the universities were telling us. But people, I think young people who have got their results this week, outstanding. We've seen, you know, real growths in maths, some really fantastic top-end results, and I think that underlines how we should be confident about our future. But John and Ben's question is, given that they, these newer, harder exams resulted in pretty much the same outcomes, I think it's 0.1% difference in the, in, the, in the pass rate, if I've read the figures correctly, what was the point of putting schools and everybody else through all this extra work and extra hassle? But I suppose it comes da down to that point, uh, Sean, on the the nature of the exam itself and this shift from exam rather than the coursework that has existed before. And, and I think it therefore gives that confidence for young people moving into universities, knowing that that isn't for everyone, how apprenticeships, how our new T-levels, our new technical examinations are absolutely a route that we want to promote and encourage. But, but actually it's how ensuring that we give young people that best chance in life and how these changes in the exams were to reflect that as people look towards those university Places. Norman Lamb. Well, I'm not at all sure about the sense of shifting emphasis towards an exam at the end of the process. It tests a certain type of skill. Uh, I don't think it's a skill that I would particularly uh, do particularly well at. Um, I didn't do particularly well in my A-levels anyway, but uh, no, that's another story. But, um, uh, and so I think there's, you know, the, the, the frustration with teachers is the sort of constant meddling from the centre uh, without any real purpose. <clears throat> um, 
and so you're left exactly as your question poses. What's the point uh, if very little has changed the results? I want to make just two quick points. Uh, one of the things that's been highlighted this week is a very significant drop in the number of students doing languages uh, for GCSE and A-level. I think that's really worrying, particularly with Brexit coming up. We need to be engaging more with the outside world, and language skills are vitally important for this country's future. The other point... Uh, the other point, to, to actually pick up on what James has said, is that uh, I think there is still this obsession with the university route uh, and a failure completely to give sufficient status to people who choose another route. Uh, it's yeah. not right for everybody. Um, I, I can remember when I had a glorious eight months as a business minister in 2012, I met with the German ambassador and I said to him, why is it that you've managed to maintain your manufacturing sector, your exports, in a way that this country has failed to do? And he said, you put your finance people on a pedestal, we put our engineers on a pedestal. And I thought... Was, uh, now, the, there is the T-level coming out, but let's make sure this time we get it right and that we give real status to that vocational route and don't mess around with inadequate funding. We are not spending enough money on the future uh, skills of our nation, our nation's youngsters, particularly now we're in this fourth industrial revolution where the changing demands on the workforce will be so dramatic, so profound... So we need to invest more in the future, more in education, and we need to recognise the importance of vocational skills. Mm. Katie Balls. Well, I think John and Ben make together a very good point, and it's something actually I was left wondering this week when I was reading the reports on this, because you look at some of these exam grades for specific ones, and I think it's one A level where an A grade was 55%. That doesn't sound quite right. Um, that suggests to me the exam is too hard or it's not being taught in the right manner. I think it's worth bearing in mind that in these transition years between when you change some syllabuses or the way the course works, and this all relates to Michael Gove reforms, that there is more chance of you kind of moving up and down the grades just to account for the fact that teachers are still trying to get to grips. With and the, the, and the examiners do yeah. uh, make those adjustments to ensure that there isn't a dramatic change in one cohort as they call it one year isn't penalized unfairly exactly right? so that a pupil isn't yeah, exactly isn't punished in the long term when they're applying to those exams so i think you have that for a few transition years but i think if it is a long-term trend that we suddenly just you know reduce the pass marks of these exams then it, you do wonder what is the point in these reforms rachel maskell well, I first of all want to say well done to everyone for getting through their A-levels and also to the parents for putting yeah. up with the stress in the <laughs> household and, of course, the teachers as well who have really had to make lots of adjustments this year, as they do every single year. But um, we all learn in different ways and, therefore, testing our knowledge in different ways is really important. And, therefore, just going through this exam route will narrow off opportunities for so many people. We're seeing the narrowing of the curriculum, vital subjects like the arts subjects now not being taught in so many places.
but also we are seeing young people under more pressure than they have ever before and we're seeing that a real impact on their mental health and their well-being and we have to say there is a lot more to learning than just passing exams getting knowledge exploring yeah, learning kind of different research techniques and different ways of uh, gaining knowledge that's what the real world is about and it's really important that we give our young people the opportunity to have that breadth of education as they go through as opposed to just the pressure which comes through you may have a skill in passing an exam but that doesn't necessarily prepare you for the rest of your life and therefore I would call on the government to pull back from this measure of just looking at qualifications as an exam being passed and think of the breadth of education that's why we want a national education service so we look at that whole lifelong journey of learning from the very little ones and their learning around play and skills and social skills right through to learning on the job later on in life and allowing people to dip in and out of their education as as they adjust through their careers and as they move forward but we must keep that p curriculum broad because our economy demands it right let's put that back to uh, <laughs> let's put that back to uh, the questioner to john constable um is that your experience as a, as a parent um, I've got two experiences. As, as, as a parent, I've seen the, the hard work that, uh, that Ben's put into his exams uh, and the preparation for those this year, and the, you know, like, like any other parent, the stress that that's caused. Well I'm also done, a secondary ben. school head yeah, teacher, great. and I've seen it from the other side as well. And I'm still waiting for the... Um, I think it was Nicky Morgan who promised us a period of calm and stability. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Former Education could, Secretary yeah, under David Cameron. Yeah. It would be nice to know when that's going to arrive. Yeah. <laughs> I think things worth saying that there's a lot that's positive about the new A-levels, um, but I don't. But I think the danger is that you throw the baby out with the bathwater. Mm -hmm. And we have, we, you know, with, with Rachel's points were, were very valid. There's, there has been a narrowing of the curriculum. There has been issues in schools, and um, I think we, we, the government needs to make sure that the, the broad and balanced education that we value is 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 what they promote. There you go. A view of parent and teacher as well. And Ben, uh, what are you what are you going to do next? Um, hoping to go to uni. Um, got a place at Exeter to do computer science. Uh, luckily, so great, and a STEM right. subject too, Very as well. Good. Very good. Very good. Well, uh, good luck with that. Congratulations. <laughs> and if you go to Exeter, you'll be studying in God's own county. Our next yeah. question, please. <laughs> great university. Chris Cummings. <laughs> Given the need for affordable housing, how can this be achieved without compromising the green belt? Well, this is right on James Brokenshire's doorstep, so I'm not going to go to James Brokenshire first. I'm going to ask Katie Pauls. <laughs> I think the, um, the green belt is interesting. There's a big debate going on within the Conservative Party at the moment, often splashed on the front of the Daily Mail, which is never a Conservative MP says you should build on the green belt. You get a backlash. This is, you know, trespassing. You know, you're going to ruin the views of people's homes. And actually, traditional Tory voters, you know, are sceptical of this. But I think Liz Truss put it pretty well when she had to talk about this. And she said, you know, for all these people who are sceptical of building on the green belt it's much better having you know another house out your window than perhaps um you know marxist moved in and that's the conservative view but i think it is the choice facing the conservative party right now which is that unless they build more homes um they are going to basically go out of power because the whole point of the conservative party is this kind of property owning dream and i think that we have seen actually a sea change in how people view the green belt and we had a warning a few weeks ago from one of these surveys basically said saying that if we build on the green belt, we're doing it at too high a rate. And you looked at it, and actually the rate that we're building on the green belt at the moment, I think it's 
0.002%. Um, so it's, it's not very fast. And I think we see the green belt as this kind of beautiful land, but there's lots of parts that aren't how you imagine. You know, the green belt is, is old, the, how we define it. So I think we should build on that and basically build whatever we can if we are going to fix this. Um, we, we, time is a little bit against us, so Rachel Maskell, if, but bear that in mind if you would. Well, we've just got to get building, haven't we? I mean, if I look at my own constituency, we've got a real housing crisis in York, and the reality is those units are not being built, particularly addressing some of the real housing needs that we're seeing from homelessness in our cities right through to those people which haven't had the opportunity to get on the housing ladder. And that's why Labour will build a million homes in a, in a government to make sure that they're truly affordable, not this quarter of a million or £350,000 if you live in London. But we need to look at where we, we build. Some people um, don't understand that some kind of uh, green areas are actually brownfield. We've said brownfield first, let's build on that land and then expand where we have to. But the important thing is people have somewhere to live, a roof over their head. And I have to say the government lacks ambition when it comes to house building and particularly homes for the homeless. If your, you think your figures are, about are 20... very ambitious. Um, you said a, a kind of million homes. I mean, when you look at the, the most recent figures, which are that in 2017 of the 290,000 homes that became available, fewer than 14,000 were newly built. Are you sure you're not aiming to... You're accusing them of lacking ambition. Are you sure you're not being too unrealistic? Well, we've, we've got to build those homes and certainly putting on the skills now is really important as well around the construction industry. I was with developers earlier today discussing this real issue with Brexit and how that's going to impact. But we need to make sure that rough sleeping is brought to an end. And the, the government's saying 2027, yeah, yeah. you know, that, that's another nine years of people sleeping on our streets. And Andy oh, Burnham, Mayor of Manchester, has said 2020 um, to end rough sleeping. That is what ambition is. That's what Labour and will Chris deliver. And Chris Cummins' question then, given your ambitious targets, can this be achieved without compromising the Greenbelt? Well, we're not going to be compromising the agreement. There's all sorts of different things you can do with the green belt. You can have land spots between Brown and Greenfield site to make it more ready to build on, on, on um, the housing that is required. So we need to explore all of the options there to ensure that we get delivery. James Brokenshire, the man in the hot seat mm. on this. Well, there's, so, there's certainly no lack of ambition or intent on the part of the government over the... Uh, last uh, course of th this government, we delivered over 1.1 million additional homes, 378,000 of them being in the affordable category. And, you know, there's a £9 billion programme that I'm overseeing to deliver affordable homes, homes for social rent, something that is very clear on our delivery in the Social Housing Green paper that was very firmly yes about improving standards, improving quality, ensuring redress and challenging some of the wrongful stigma about people living in social housing, but also about that delivery too. And coming to this point around the Green Belt, uh, we published our new uh, planning policy framework, effectively the the policy rule book for planning fairly recently, which strengthened the protections around the Green Belt. And I believe that you can prioritise on Brownfield land. You can look smartly over density of development, which means that we can uphold our Green Belt, which is about protecting and separating communities. That real idea of creating a home that you can be proud of, the place that you live within, and how, yes, we want to achieve that 300,000 target annually because that's the home building that we need to do to make up for the lack of focus over many, many decades. Norman Lamb, I'm sorry, you have one minute starting now. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think the most shocking thing of all is the number of homes that stand empty in this capital city that are bought for investment purposes. Um, 
That clapping has given me less time. Uh, uh, and there should be a punitive tax on those properties. It's outrageous that they are allowed to get away with this. And, and the number of social housing that is now being built in this country is at a scandalously low level. And in the announcements this week on social housing from James, there was no new money for social housing, for goodness nine, sake. This is completely unacceptable. There. We need to build more social homes. Mm. There is genuinely a housing crisis in our country. Yeah. And the Tories have this complete obsession about home ownership. Many of us aspire to home ownership, and rightly so, but there are some people who can't afford it and who need a good home to live in, and we should make sure we provide for them as well. Yeah, absolutely. There we go. Almost without hesitation, deviation or repetition. My thanks to my panel here at the Radio Theatre. Next week's a Graham Beatty MP, Tommy Shepherd MP, Dame Esther Ranson, and Rose Duffield, the new Labour MP for Canterbury, for all of us on the programme. Goodbye. <laughs> Sorry we were quite behind. <laughs>